trust me, the Lord Jesus would say to us, trust me, even when all hell is breaking out around you. Trust me. Lean on, rely on, count on, depend on, trust me, even when all hell may be breaking out against us. Now, that's a figure of speech that we use. It's interesting that we don't say when all heaven is breaking out against you. We understand what it means when we say when it seems like all hell is breaking loose. It means that it seems like the worst of the bad, the most mischievous of the bad, is just coming in torrents. No restraint, no protected direction. It's a storm. It's a storm. It's a storm. When all hell is breaking loose in the way we would look at it in our lives, right in the middle of that, to you, into your heart, the Lord looking with his piercing eyes right into your soul would say to you this morning, trust me. Just trust me. If it's with your kids, if it's with another family member, if it's with work, if it's with health, whatever the storm may be, I believe he's saying to us, trust me. Now we're going to look this morning at a, at a section of the book of Acts that details a season in the life of the Apostle Paul that is not studied that much, isn't talked about that much, but it involves one of the three shipwrecks that the Apostle Paul was involved in. He, he will say in 2 Corinthians that he was shipwrecked three times, that he was a night and a day floating around in the deep, hanging on to a piece of lumber or something, and this is one of them. Before we read that, I, I want to read, work our way through these, these few chapters. I want to give you four statements that I believe are the Lord's heart, the Lord's heart for us this morning if we're in the middle of a storm. If it seems like all hell is breaking loose. Statement number one, trust me. Even when all hell breaks loose, because I will remind you. I will remind you of what I've said to you, of who you are to me, of what the promises were that were made to you by me. I will remind you. Secondly, when all hell is breaking loose, you can trust me because I will speak to you. The reminder is about something in the past that he said, a promise that he made in the past. But the I will speak to you is the today, right now, at this fork in the road, which way do I go? What do I choose? How do I navigate this part? of the stormy water, I will speak to you. The third one, trust me even when all hell breaks loose because I will use you. I will use you in your storm. The storm is not just about you surviving it. The storm is not just about what I'm showing you about me, the Lord could say. But the storm can very well be about how I will use you to encourage and to bless and to speak to and to refresh other people going through a storm like yours or even with you. I will use you. 
And then the fourth one, trust me, even when all hell breaks loose, because I will deliver you. I will deliver you. Let me give you one other line just to be thinking about that will recur as we look through this season in Paul's life. There is no power of Satan that will ever have the ability to negate the purpose of God for your life. No power of Satan, no scheme, plot, plan of Satan will ever have the ultimate ability, the ultimate power to negate the purpose of God for your life. The purpose of God for your life because it is the power of God driving the purpose of God. The purpose of God will in the end always win out over the power of Satan. Hold on, hold on, wait for it, you'll see it, it will happen. I want you to find, if you would, in your copy of the Scripture, the book of Acts and Acts chapter 22. A couple of different types of storms. It's like Paul's getting shot with a, with a double-barrel shotgun, an over-and-under, 12-gauge, full choke loaded, loaded with buckshot. He's getting aimed at, and he's going to be fired at, two volleys. The first one comes from people, people who just decide, not only do they not like Paul because they disagree with Paul, but they so vehemently oppose him and despise him that they want him dead. And, and they were powerful enough, and they had connections enough that they were able to, to maneuver and to set in place some plans literally to try to kill Paul. So we'll, we'll look at that, how he, he escapes from that. He's brought through that season only to end up in another storm. He got a storm from people, and then here comes the second barrel, nature, the realm of nature, the physical universe. He's out on a boat. And all hell breaks loose. And he ends up having to face a shipwreck. The Apostle Paul is in trouble. Not because he shot anybody. Not because he stole a bunch of money. But the Apostle Paul is in trouble because he was emphatic and he was singular in his focus that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. And as he would proclaim that, and the, and the power of the Spirit would confirm his statements and his preaching and his teaching, the crowds would build and folks would be convinced of, and it became a threat to a religious system. Most of the time, whenever you have people, powerful people opposing you, so much so that they want your destruction, it is because you have become a threat to their system. Systems can be good in some ways, but they can be deadly in other ways. If, if a system can promote you, a system can award you, a system can provide for you. But if you ever go contrary to that system, if, if your convictions rise up and you've been a part of the system, but your convictions become such that you can no longer contribute to the thinking of the system and you become opposed to the system, then watch out. The system will come after you. It can be a Christian system, a religious system, a political system, a family system, a business system. Systems, systems are made to exist and perpetrate the, the, what is the norm to them. Well, Paul comes along and he was a part of the system. He graduated up through the training, the education of the system, and then now all of a sudden, he is an opponent to the system, and he's hated for it. 
He's seized in the temple. He, he, he comes back. He, he's, he's been away for a long time, but he comes back into the temple, and, and he has a couple of folks with him that, that the Jewish leadership felt like were not allowed to be there, and, and Paul had brought them in. So, so they, 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 they take Paul. They arrest him. Such a commotion happens that the Roman authorities step in, and they try to control the crowds. They allow Paul a statement, a type, an opportunity to make a statement to the crowd. He gets a chance to defend himself. And this is what begins in Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. He's speaking to his people, brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. That was the, the native tongue, but it was also, in a sense, a scholarly tongue. It meant that Paul was trained, he was schooled, he was educated, he wasn't an idiot. That he knew what he was talking about and he deserved to be listened to. At least he knew what he was talking about in the sense that he could express himself. He was, he was well read. So he says in verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, brought up in Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel. Gamaliel is renowned even to this day as being one of the prominent Jewish rabbis in all of Jewish history. Saul, then Saul, before he became Paul, was a student of Gamaliel, raised at the feet of Gamaliel. When they just threw that name out, when he threw that name out, antenna went up. Strictly according, he was trained, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way, this way being a code name for the followers of Jesus. I persecuted this way to death, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. The, the high priest knew Saul. The, the, the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders, they knew him. He was a fair-haired boy. He was one of their own. He came up through their schools. He sat at the feet of one of their, of their most prominent professor alive at the day, to, at, at that time. They knew him. He knew them. He said, they could testify. These are the things that I did. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there in Damascus to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished for the, being followers of the way, being loyal to this one Paul at that time deemed a traitor and a heretic, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 6, so he's talking. And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you were persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus and a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me standing near and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you shall be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste 
and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up until this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting again. The Romans didn't have a clue. They didn't know. This was just a religious fight. But if you've ever been in a mix-up with a religious person who believes that they've heard God and you stand opposite to what that person believes he heard God said, then you just understand they, they would ha can have this kind of outlook about you and toward you. You don't even deserve to live. You're so wrong. You're so crazy. Paul is in the middle of a people storm. It wasn't that they just didn't like him. They wanted him dead. And the reason they didn't like him is because he had come to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. He had met the Lord. The Lord had met with him. And as a result of that encounter, he was forever changed, just like you and I get forever changed when that happens to us. We may not hear a voice or see a, see a light from heaven, but there's no doubt about it that when Jesus Christ comes and he begins to knock on the door of a heart and he begins to let you know that he is real, that he loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins and open your heart up to him, he would say. And we do that and he comes in and he begins to make his home inside us. A change happens from the inside out. And it's infinitely better than the outside in trying to straightjacket somebody into, you better quit that and you better start doing this. You better, that, that's totally different than what Jesus will do in a life. He works on us from the inside out. He changes our hearts from the inside out. And that was what Paul was. What happened to him? He saw something with the eyes of his heart. He saw somebody with the eyes of his heart. And it completely blew away his religious convictions, the, the majority of them up until that time. That God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion. God is a God with a heart, not just rules. He wants a relationship, not just the kind of respect that would come from someone who's always in trouble with, with, a, with a deity who can never be known, who can never be understood, and he's always ticked off to meet Jesus. The real Jesus means that you understand God in a completely different way. He came to you because he cares about you. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to. He's not obligated to knock on the door of any heart, but he does it because he wants to. His heart is strong with love for those he loves. And that completely changed Paul's perspective on what God was all about and what, what it was to be a part of any kind of a system that would represent this God, that at the core of it is to be acceptance and mercy and forgiveness instead of rules and regimentation and laws and coming down hard on people without any hope for them to ever be changed from the inside out. So here we have Paul. All these years later now, we don't know how many years it was from the time in Acts chapter 9 when he, it is recorded in the book of Acts by Luke that he actually met the Lord. It, it could have been a few years. It could have been a couple of decades. It could have been several decades. But here's the point. Paul is now in a storm, and they're wanting him dead, and they're powerful people arrayed against him. But in the storm, the Lord says to Paul, in effect, trust me, Paul, trust me. And here's how you can know that you can trust me, is that I will remind you of what I said to you in the beginning. What I said to you in the beginning about who you are and about who I am has not changed. It hasn't gotten old. It hasn't gotten mold on it. 
It hadn't lost its shelf life. It's still real. It's still true. I am the living Lord Jesus Christ. You were persecuting me, but there's mercy in my heart toward you, Saul. He never got over that, and the Lord never let him forget it. Folks, listen. In the darkest night of your personal storm, when it may seem like everybody who knows your name hates you, even if it's to that extent, there is one who still loves you. There is one who still can come to you. There is one who can make his presence known to you right where you are. And what he says is, you can trust me and let me remind you of who you are to me. It's as if, and, and Paul would rehearse that again. He would, be, he would be before Festus, a governor, and then again before Agrippa, a, 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 a king of sorts in Israel. And he will, he, will, he will say almost those exact words. He takes it back to that point of beginning whenever he had a chance to describe how it started between him and Jesus. And he would repeat the same word, that the Lord came to him, spoke to him, I am the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've come to you to make known to you my purpose for your life. Folks, listen, when God has a purpose for your life, not even Satan and all of his sin and all of his attempts to pull you back and pull you off track, if God has a purpose for your life, and your heart is, even though you may have fallen, as King David did repeatedly and desperately, if your heart is to turn back to the Lord, if your heart is to cry out for his mercy, if your heart is willing to turn your back on whatever it was that you did before, you're met with the love of the Father. You're met with the hope of God and the help of God and the rewriting power of God so that his mercy can rewrite your life. Saul, Paul, knew that, understood that, believed that. But when the bottom was falling out, when it was as if he couldn't find anybody that he could count on, the Lord came to him and in his spirit, reminded him of where it all started, reminded him of how the Lord of glory, the Holy Christ, came to him. Saul couldn't find God. He wouldn't even know where to look. He thought he was doing all the right thing, but he was so far off. The Lord came to him. The Lord, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're a chosen vessel of mine. Folks, listen, the power of Satan will never be great enough to negate the purpose of God for your life. The power and schemes and plan of Satan will never be great enough to negate the purpose of God for your life. Where there is a yes in you, where there is a desire in you, to finish out, to fulfill the purpose of God for your life. I will remind you, I will remind you, I'll remind you. Now listen, folks, when you're in a storm and it's a people storm, what God will remind you of and will say about you will more than likely be diametrically opposed to everybody else who's talking your name will be saying to you. It will be as if there can be so many of them and they're so convinced and, they've, and they seem to know you so well and they seem to have, have all of their facts put together and they've got this case that's presenting you so that, so that there's just really nothing left for you but just to surrender and to quit and to back up and to agree with them. Enter the room, the truth of the Spirit of God. Enter the room, the one who will say to you, I picked you out because I wanted you. I chose you knowing everything I'd get when I got you. And there is mercy, and there is grace, and there is freedom, and there is fullness, and there is a future for you. Not with those who are trying to kill you, trying to destroy you, 
but with the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued you. He knows how important it is that he remind us of who we are to him and who he is to us in the middle of our storm. Again and again and again, when Paul would have opportunity, he would be called upon to give a a statement of, of, of what he was doing and why he did it and where it came from. He would always go back to the point of beginning where he was a persecutor, blind in his conclusions, thinking that this Jesus who was cursed, he had to be cursed because he was hanging on a tree according to Moses, that he was a heretic. That was his conclusion. He thought he was right in his conclusion. But then on that day, midday, when that light shone and that voice spoke and his heart got warmed, he was never the same again. <laughs> I know, I know I'm screaming and hollering and spitting at y'all. I don't mean to be doing that. But I'm telling you, when, when this kind of thing happens to you, it, it, it may not be a Damascus Road kind of thing, but there is a change in your knower. There is something that happens on the inside of you that is supernatural, that you know in you, and is the convincing of your own heart and spirit that Jesus Christ is real. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is able. Jesus Christ loves me, and I love him back because he first loved me. It's the inevitable reflex response to being melted by the love of God in your heart. And there's not a one of us who could say, well, I deserved it. I knew so many Bible verses. I'd said no to so many temptations. I've been walking the straight and narrow for so many years that it was no big deal to me when I came to know the love of God. The chances are you've never come to know the love of God if that's your attitude about how you've lived. Because you don't need his love, in a sense. You can get to thinking, well, I'm worthy on my own. But what did Jesus say to that woman who poured that alabaster vial of costly perfume on her feet? He said to the Pharisee who was sitting there squeaky clean and doting in his cleanness, looking down at this woman, he said, let me tell you something, Simon. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven much loves much. So yes, Lord, we're guilty. Yes, Lord, we've chosen improperly and wrongly time and time again. But now we see your mercy. Now we see your heart. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. I receive your tenderness toward me, a sinner. Okay. When you're in a storm and everybody around you that means anything to you nearly thinks you're just a dirt clod sucking air, that's all you are, there is another who thinks differently. There is another who has another voice, and he's able to say, Paul, you understand this. I have chosen you. I picked you out for my purpose for your life. See, never got over it. So I'll never got, I will remind you, the Lord said, I will remind you. And I will speak to you. I will speak to you. Look, look at this verse 18 in chapter 22. Came about when I returned to Jerusalem. Paul is describing still going on in his speech, giving his background and so forth. In turn, Jerusalem was praying. I fell into a trance. I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Okay, now look, that, that's a radical departure from what some trying to interpret and state what always the will of God is for a believer. They will say, some will say, anytime there's opposition, 
Anytime there's a threat to your well-being, just stomp your little banner rooster feet, plant your other leg, set your jaw, and rebuke that devil. Rebuke that devil. That devil will come under authority. That devil will come. The only problem with that, not that there isn't truth in it, but you can't prove that that's the way the Holy Spirit always directed folks to do. Case in point, this right here. The Lord, this, this, isn't, this isn't an archangel. This isn't Isaiah visiting the earth. This is the Lord himself speaking to Saul. Make haste and get out of Dodge, i.e. Jerusalem. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul could have stood there and rebuked the devil all day long and stomped and shouted his authority all day long, and this word from Jesus would still be standing as the correction. Wait a minute. It's not time. There would, there would come a time. There would be a point at which those in that measure of authority would have to back off, but it wasn't now. And so the Lord gave instruction. The, the, the point here is, the Lord said, I'll speak to you. When you're in your storm and you don't know what to do next, the battle is being raided against you and you can't figure out what the next step is, trust me, I'll speak to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, understand it. That means leave room, leave room, leave room for the Lord to speak. If my heart is open, my ears are listening. Lord, it looks like you're about the only friend I got right now. Anybody ever felt like that? Storm, it, it, it doesn't seem like, I don't know who to trust. Lord, I don't know who's about ready to bail out on me. I don't know. I don't even know what I think about me. The Lord would say, Trust me, I will speak to you. I will let you know. Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. The Holy Spirit can give the courage, as was given in, the, in a couple of chapters, or to stand up, step before a large crowd, and to declare boldly what had happened to him, who, what his relationship with Jesus was. But here we find this. At this point in time, the Lord's stepping into the situation. He's not on the bank somewhere. He, he, he's not in some spaceship somewhere just kind of trying to beam a few messages down every once in a while. It's as if he's right there in the middle of it with Paul like he's right there in the middle of it with you this morning, right where you are. And he knows what is pertinent information. He knows what is relevant instruction. He knows if there's a need for a choice to be made, he knows how to deliver it to you. He knows how to say it. He knows how to get the message. Thank you, Lord. So he says, trust me. Trust me. Even when all hell breaks loose, you trust me, because I'll remind you. Anybody in here need to be reminded? Reminded, ask the Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, remind me. Lord, you know, you know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. You, you know I can forget stuff, Lord. I, I can lose the grab, the grip of some of the truths to my heart. Lord, would you remind me? Would you remind me? Would you remind me? Would you? Because nobody else is helping me here. Would you remind me in my storm? Would you speak to me in the storm? Would you speak to me? Well, he continues on. He, you know, he, the, the, the only way that he was going to get out of this mess, look over to chapter 25 and about verse 10. And he's now, he's, he's, he's before a Roman governor. Now, he's not speaking to his people anymore. He's, he's before a Roman governor. And this is, this is where he got his ticket to Rome. Paul said in verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have commanded or committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. His right as a Roman citizen, as a natural-born Roman citizen. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now why would Paul do that? Why would he do that? If you backed up to chapter 23 and looked at verse 11, after there'd been another big uproar with his countrymen opposing him in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin taking their stand against him, verse 11, 23, 11, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. The power of Satan, the schemes of Satan, the plans of Satan will never be powerful enough to negate the purpose of God. This is the one who wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for we know that God causes what? All things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is more powerful than Satan's schemes. God is more powerful than seasons of sin even. God is more powerful ultimately than the plots and designs of systems of people or government or corporate life or anything. There is no power great enough to negate the purpose of God for a life. The Lord spoke to Paul. Rome is where you're to go. He realizes, I can appeal to Caesar, the right of every Roman citizen, to have an audience, a hearing, ultimately before the tribunal with the emperor, Caesar. Amazing thing is, when he appealed to Caesar, he got that appeal. The appeal was granted. Steps were taken in motion, put in motion for that trip to be made, for him to be transported from Jerusalem to Rome. As he was handed over completely to the Romans to be transported to Caesar's court, that got him out of the skillet. He was being cooked in that skillet. But you read the rest of this, and it's like he got out of the skillet into the proverbial what? Fire. I've I, I got to just show you some of this and let you, let you read down through it, maybe on your own. This is chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. This, I'm going to read some of this out of the, um, the living translation, the new, new living translation. They got on a boat that didn't have railroad you know, cars and trains, didn't have airplanes. They, they, either, they either walked or were carried by some, that some you know, vehicle that some uh, animal pulled, or they got in a boat and floated on a boat with no motor, just oars, or just sails. So they get assigned to this boat, and I'm picking up in verse 9, Acts 27. We'd lost a lot of time. There's a, it's it's first-person plural. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. When, he, when you see the we passages in the book of Acts, that, that means Luke was in on it. <laughs> you know, good luck if your assignment is to follow around somebody like the Apostle Paul all your life, where the places you end up. And that was Luke's story. Verse 9, we had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall. 
Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on shipwreck, loss of cargo, danger our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength called a northeaster caught the ship and blew it out to sea. They couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Cauda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were being driven before the wind. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, Luke writes, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You'd have avoided all this damage and loss, but take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God, it will be just as he said. Isn't that something? 276 people on this boat. They're going with the storm, no longer trying to fight the storm. They dropped a sea anchor to try to slow some of the some of their journey, but who knew how deep the water would be? They were just, they were just freewheeling across the Adriatic Sea. <laughs> now, now, Paul has just left Jerusalem. My goodness, can't somebody give the boy a break? They were trying to kill him there. He gets out of Jerusalem by appealing to Caesar which means that he is now a prisoner of the Roman state. He's not being escorted, being chauffeured on a cruise ship to meet with Caesar. He's going as a prisoner under the custody of a centurion. And then the storm breaks out on the ship. All hope lost. <laughs> But here's it. They say that, that Saul or Paul was probably a, a small fellow, not a tall fellow. And, and some, some will say that he, he spoke in, in a high, squeaky kind of voice. When he got excited or tried to project, he got up real high, high pitch. So he wasn't fun to look at and he wasn't easy to listen to. But he was God's chosen vessel. He is the author, humanly, of two-thirds of your New Testament in your lap this morning. And the purpose of the plans of Satan would not be strong enough to negate the purpose of God for Paul's life. So here he is, a prisoner on a ship. The ship is just freewheeling through the ocean. And in the middle of that, the Lord shows up to him. The Lord sends an angel to speak to him. 
And the angel says, be encouraged. There will be no loss of life. Not just you and Luke, but the 276 other folks on this boat are going to survive too. The Lord spoke to him in the storm. Not just about his own condition, but about the others who were there as well. I'll speak to you. He tells them that. He reports that to them. The storm is raging. And he's in this high-pitched voice just shouting it out. Nobody's going to die. Not a hair on your head's going to die. It's going to be lost. We'll all make it through. The ship will go down, but you will all be spared. And sure enough, the ship ran aground. The ship began to break up. They were going to kill the prisoners because out of fear that the prisoners would escape, then the soldiers would be at jeopardy. But the centurion, and in Luke's specific word, because he wanted to make sure that Paul was safely ending his mission, and that he, he stopped the soldiers from killing the prisoners. They bail out, they jump, they grab a hold of boards, the ones that would swim, swim. Paul floats to the bank hanging on to a piece of wood. Or however he got there. But it wasn't a jet ski that came by to pick him up. He wasn't suddenly given the ability to walk on the waves. He got there the best way he could get there, but he got there alive. No power of Satan has the ability to negate the purpose of God for life. It may not always be pretty. It may not always be a five-star hotel. But God will finish what he started with you. He will get you through. He will carry you through. He will finish what he started with you. And he was delivered. And as he was delivered, he was used he was used to encourage that unbelieving crew, to encourage all those other prisoners on that boat. When they finally get to the bank and they find out that, that, that it's uh, where, wherever they are, what was that, in, in Cyprus or Crete, wherever they ended up, Malta, they ended up in Malta. They, they, they go out on, and, and the, the people there in, in Malta saw what would happen, and so they built a fire, and everybody was warming up, it's cold and wet. You remember this part? Paul goes over and grabs a pile of brush to put on the fire. Out of the pile of brush, his copperhead crawls. Well, I don't know that it was a copperhead, but it could have been one right. Grabbed onto his arm or his hand and just hung there. Venomous snake. <laughs> the, the Malta people, when they saw that, their conclusion was, well, this is someone who's guilty of a great crime and the sea didn't get him, so the snake's going to. And then when then they got to watching Paul sitting around the fire and talking to folks, and when he didn't swell up and he didn't get sick and croak, now they changed their tune. Well, he must be a god because the snake bite didn't get him. The word went out. Found out that the leading man on the island, his father was sick with dysentery and, and a condition that was very life-threatening, evidently. Paul went, prayed for that man. That man got well. Then people from all over the island started bringing sick people for Paul to pray for. He's still in his storm. He's still on his way as a prisoner of the Roman government to testify before the emperor. But in his storm, the Lord reminded him. The Lord spoke to him. The Lord used him, and the Lord delivered him. Worthy of our note this morning. It's worthy of our note. The Lord's saying to you, trust me. Even when all hell is breaking loose, you can't see all that I'm doing, 
but it's also true that I will finish my purpose for your life. I love that statement where Paul will say, the God to whom I belong and the God I serve has spoken to me. The God to whom I belong. Well, where are you? Where are you, Paul? Well, I'm in a ship without a sail, without a rudder. The anchors don't work. Have no idea where we're going. We're just hoping we don't end up in Africa somewhere. But I belong to God. I belong to him. In other words, God's got me. John 10 speaks of Jesus having his grip around our souls, who we are, and then the Father having his grip around Jesus' hand. It's a double grip. The God to whom I belong. He's saying that to you this morning. He's saying that to you this morning. The God to whom you belong. You belong to him. Because he chose you, he wants you, he loves you, he delights in you. This is a season, but in this season, it is furthering the purpose of God in your life. You get through this storm. You know, Paul would list all those things in 2 Corinthians 10 or 11, all the things that happened to him. But then, then the, 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 the climax of all of his statement theologically in Philippians 3, chapter 10, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Because the Lord had brought him through again and again, it brought more of a fascination with the power of God and the love of God and the tenacity of God. And Paul just wanted to know more and more and more of that instead of less and less and less of that. Lord, I thank you for the time in your word this morning. I thank you for sparing us in this area of the state from damage that could have been ours, the the storms that could have settled in on us that, that are somewhere else this morning. Thank you for having mercy on us, even as we pray for your mercy to be shown to those we love and care about in other parts of our state and country. But Lord, we ask you, We ask you in our storm, the place where we are this morning, that you will give to us the ability to trust you. Remind us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Use us in the midst of it. We trust you to deliver us out the other side for your glory by your mighty hand. In Jesus' name, amen.